So last week, um, we, or sorry, week one, we looked at pressing on through, uh, through the desert, Luke 4, 1 to 13. Then uh, last week, we learned how Jesus pressed on so that we can press in. And Luke 13, 35 so shows Jesus as a chicken, Jesus as the mother hen or the brother hen. Um, that's Luke 13, um, 31 to 35. Now, this morning, we're going to focus on uh, pressing on to fruitfulness. Um, and our text is Luke 13, 1 to 9. And to um, summarize our text, uh, this is kind of a sentence that I think sums up what we're about to read. But Luke 13, 1 to 9 invites me to focus away from figuring out if or when God is judging others because of their sin and instead asks me to judge myself by my fruitfulness, by my own fruitfulness. And, you know, so the question here isn't, are they sinning? The question is, Am I bearing fruit? Um, so let's press on to fruitfulness. Luke 13, verse 1. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus two things. One, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. That's verse 1. And about those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. And I'm going to pause right there and we're going to hear the scripture read to us because Stacy did such a great job. Our scripture today is from Luke chapter 13, 1 through 9. Now there were some present at the time who told... Hear it in a moment once our sound guy's back. Our scripture today is from Luke chapter 13, 1 through 9. Okay, we, we'll hear it in a minute, but it's good. So I want you to hear it. So these are two separate incidences that Jesus wanted, um, that people wanted Jesus to hear about. Um, now this morning's lectionary text, Luke 13, 1 to 9, takes place a few verses before last week's uh, scripture. Uh, and in, in this morning's text, just as it was last week, uh, we find Jesus locationally, he's in Galilee, but directionally, He's heading towards Jerusalem, okay? He's locationally here, but he's heading towards here. He's resolutely heading towards, yeah, the capital city. And throughout uh, chapter 12 and chapter 13, there's been this growing sense of foreboding, okay? At one point, Jesus talks about being watchful. He then warns that families are actually going to split over him. Uh, he also tells us that we need to have our interpretation specs on to understand what's going on in the world. So there's this kind of shadow over the landscape. And m maybe we felt it recently as well as we try to put on our interpretation specs and try to understand what is going on on our national stage and around the world. And then in the middle of this uh, somber chapter, um, our text introduces us to a group of people who bring Jesus these two news stories. Um, and uh, so the first story is about some local Galileans who went over to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices in the temple, and they got caught up in some sort of a riot or raid by the Romans, and they were killed in the temple. Their blood was mingled with the blood of the animals that they were sacrificing. Quite a gruesome image. This is big news. Now let's hear our scripture. 
Now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but it did not find, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. I think it's, it's really important that we hear the whole thing uh, so that what I'm about to say makes sense. So, so there's that uh, w- one incident, you know, in the temple um, where the blood gets mixed with the blood of the sacrifices. And, uh, and one, one commentator I read thinks that maybe people were reacting to um, what Pontius Pilate did, it, is that he used some temple funds to build an aqueduct. People weren't happy, and so uh, there was this riot maybe. Uh, and then they bring up uh, the Tower of Siloam, uh, which, which is an awful tragedy, 18 people who died in a freak accident. Now, the Archaeological Study Bible explains that the Tower of Siloam was probably part of the ancient system of fortifications on the walls of the city of Jerusalem near the Pool of Siloam, which we read about elsewhere in the Bible, and the collapse of this tower and the resulting death of these 18 people who were probably workmen employed on the aqueduct project that Pilate was working on. Uh, So now this is maybe conjecture, but might it be that these two incidences, you know, the temple um, and the tower are connected by this construction of the aqueduct. First, the worshippers are killed because they are protesting the misuse of the temple funds for the building of the aqueduct. And then 18 people, probably construction workers, um, they are killed in a tower collapse connected with the building of the aqueduct. We don't know, but there might be a link there. But these two freak accidents are uh, raising questions in the minds of the people. Namely, they are asking, might it be that God caused the Romans to kill the worshippers in the temple? And did God knock down the tower because he figures that the world is actually better off without these 18 people? This is the unspoken question in the minds of the people as they bring these two incidences to to. to you know, the Lord, uh, two seemingly unrelated events, but could God have been involved? Uh, now, to philosophers and theologians, this is known as the problem of evil. Everyone say problem of evil. And the problem of evil asks this, why do good things happen to bad people and why do bad things happen to good people? And one of the easiest answers to the problem of evil is to say, yes, Bad things happen to bad, thing, uh, bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. They deserved it. 
Um, but is that true? Let's see how Jesus responds. Uh, do you think that these Galileans in the temple were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? What does Jesus say? I tell you no. And uh, once again, do you think that those killed by the tower were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? And Jesus says, I tell you no. Jesus says that the deaths of these people are not connected to their sin. He says, I tell you no. Now, I'm glad that Jesus said this, but I'm thinking as well that Jesus could have said so much more at this moment than I tell you no. Four words. You know, at, at, at this moment in time, Jesus could have answered so many other questions like, does God ever cause natural disasters as a consequence for sin? Or how is God involved in our day-to-day running of, of this world? Or why didn't God uh, stop the disasters, you know, uh, maybe taking place in the first place? Or when we pray, can we stop things like this happening? You know, the people have, uh, in that crowd have just given Jesus the best setup ever. You know, the volleyball is there, hanging in the air. All he has to do is to spike it, and the problem of evil is done and answered forever and ever and ever. Um, but he doesn't. He doesn't give a full answer. Not because there isn't an answer, because there is, and uh, not because it's not important, because, of course, it is. You know, in fact... The questions, why does God, why, why does evil exist if God is all good, all knowing, and all powerful? And why do bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? Um, these, these questions are why the book of Job exists. These questions are why the book of Lamentations exists. This is what we read, this is what we read about in the book of Proverbs and the prophetic books and many of the Psalms. And so the Bible shows us over and over again that it is for us and God is for us wrestling with questions like this. In fact, in Psalm 73, verse 16, the psalmist says, when I try to understand all this, which is why do good things happen to bad people, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. So there are answers, and we can find them in the Bible, but even when the answers don't come, like in Psalm 73, it's important that we bring our doubts and our questions into to the sanctuary as part of our worship experience because that is where we will find answers. And so Psalm 73, if you want to read a psalm that really is about the problem of evil, then, then look at Psalm 73 and read it through and just see if you resonate with it at all. So the problem of evil is not going away. Uh, as long as people have been around, we've asked, why do good things happen to bad people? Why do bad things happen to good people? And if God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good, then why does evil exist? And like I said, a big chunk of the Bible addresses this over and over again. But here in Luke chapter 13 is Jesus' opportunity as God incarnate, you know, uh, all God, all man, he's here. He could have answered the question and uh, he doesn't. Well, that's not entirely fair because he does say one thing. He says, uh, in answer to the question, were those who were killed in the temple and under the tower, um, were they worse sinners than everyone else? And the answer is, I tell you no. So he does tell us a little insight to something. But, but in, in this sentence, in this one phrase, what Jesus does do is 
he breaks apart this simplistic explanation that bad things happen because you are bad. Um, Bad things don't happen to you because you are putting bad vibes out into the universe, right? Jesus didn't write the secret. Jesus wasn't a proponent of the secret, right? Jesus, um, you know, he never mentions karma, right? So, so, so this isn't true. Um, massacres and falling towers are not God's way of thinning the herd of undesirables. Okay, so if you're looking for a simple cause and effect in Luke chapter 13, then you will be looking for a long, long time. But I'm glad that Jesus said what he did, because I think that sometimes some of us have to trust Jesus And we really have to hold on to this truth that bad things don't happen to me because, simply because I'm a bad person. Why did the stock stock market crash just after I'd invested everything? Why did my father get sick? Why is my child struggling so much? Why am I not able to get ahead in life? Why are things just so hard? Why Ukraine, right? We have all of these questions and they all require real answers. But Jesus tells us that we need to be very careful. And as evangelical Christians, maybe we are the worst at responding to complex problems with simplistic answers, with bumper sticker theology. So why did the people die in the temple? Why did the tower fall? We don't know. All we know is that it was not because of their sin. So let's keep reading because Jesus is still talking. And if Jesus is still talking, then it's important that we keep listening. So he, Jesus then twice says, but unless you repent, you, will, you too will all perish in verse 3 and in verse 5. And in this sentence, what Jesus does is he relocates the conversation. You know, the people want to understand the headlines of the day. But Jesus wants them to start reading the headlines of their heart. Out there, the news headlines read, Galilean worshippers murdered by Pilate and 18 people killed in a freak tower collapse. But in here, the news headline, the one that matters to God in that moment is this. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. Extra, extra, read all about it. Unless you repent, you will all perish. This is breaking news in God's estimation. We read newspapers and we look at news websites to to inform us, right? We read the news to hopefully know what's going on. And hopefully, if we're followers of Jesus, then also the news story should be motivating us to pray. But here Jesus seems to say that there is a third reason that, that we should be reading news stories, and that is to cause us to reflect, to start getting us thinking about our own mortality, and maybe to start considering our own internal problem of evil. You see, if we only ever think about the problem of evil out there, the massacres and the falling towers, then we never get to considering the problem of evil in here, our need of repentance. And if we'd never do that, then we're missing the point. Reading global headlines should cause us to look inside and read the headlines of our hearts. And so Jesus' point is that reading about massacres and workplace, uh, workplace tragedies should lead us to repentance. 
wanting to make things right between us and our God. Because who knows when we might be caught up in a massacre or a tower collapse or a heart attack or a car crash or a drug overdose or an invasion. In his book, uh, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis says this, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. No doubt pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final and unrepentant rebellion, but it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. So what is Jesus really getting at when he says, unless you repent, you too will all perish? Well, to answer this deep theological question, Jesus does what he does best. He tells a story. Then he told this story, this This parable, a man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it, but he did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Now, at first glance, when we read this, it feels like a bit of a, a non sequitur. It feels clumsy. It feels like we're watching the nightly news and then someone sits on the microphone and all of a sudden we're watching Gardener's World. You know, it, it feels strange. What is the link between this and what we just read? But there is a link and the link is a word that we don't like very much. It's a word called judgment. Let me explain. As uh, humans, we look out at the world and we judge people based on outcomes, right? We see someone in a situation, we draw a conclusion. Um, He deserves failing at his business because he's a bad father. Or she deserves her name being dragged through the mud because she was unfaithful in marriage. Or he's, he's, you know, that man's on a ventilator because he smoked for 40 years. Or she failed college because her parents never gave her the chance that they should have. Or he went back to his hometown because he couldn't hack it out there. So we see situations, we see circumstances, and we draw conclusions. We judge others based on the visible outcomes of their lives. Why do we do this? I think probably because it makes us feel a little less worse or a little less bad about our own lives and our own circumstances. Even if my life is a mess, at least it's not as bad as them, right? So what has all this got to do with a fig tree in a vineyard? Well, I imagine in that vineyard that that fig tree was pretty self-satisfied. After all, it was growing, it was alive, and it had a place in the vineyard. It was set for life. And maybe as the fig tree looked at the fig trees outside of the vineyard, that it felt like it had it made. It was the chosen one. It had vineyard security. It was set for life. And friends, when we judge others by their circumstances, we can find ourselves nodding our heads knowingly and perhaps just a little bit smugly. When the towers fall down in their lives, we can think they're probably getting on some cosmic level, they're probably getting what they deserve. Sin has consequences, you know. 
Now, maybe it's not literal towers falling in people's lives, but perhaps it's their marriages falling apart. Um, Maybe it's not a literal slaughter, but perhaps it's the death of a dream or a promotion. And the judgmental attitude is symbolized by the fig tree, because the thing about this fig tree is that it was alive, but it was not bearing fruit. It was fruitless. And for a fig tree, being alive isn't enough. To keep its place in the vineyard, the fig tree needed to bear fruit. And that's how Jesus judges us, according to our fruit. We judge others by their circumstances, like in verse 1 through 4. But Jesus judges us according to our fruit, as we see in verse 5 through 8. Because while we've been making headlines of the circumstances of those around us, of their sins and their failures, we're ignoring the headlines of our own hearts. And it's these headlines, ironically, that God is ultimately interested in. And God's headline of our hearts reads, three years and no fruit. And this is why we need to repent. Friends, we cannot miss the language that Jesus is using here. He's saying that fruitless fig trees are cut down. It reminds me of Matthew chapter 7, verse 17. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. God does not judge anyone based on the circumstances of their life, but he does judge based on the fruit that we are or are not exhibiting or bearing. You know, uh, church culture nowadays says, well, if you say you're a Christian, you are. Well done. Welcome to the vineyard. We have a spot for you. But Jesus is saying, sure, you might be in the vineyard, but if you look like a figless fig tree, and you sound like a figless fig tree, and you smell like a figless fig tree, and you feel like a figless fig tree, then the odds are you're probably a figless fig tree. And trees with bad fruit or no fruit are dug up and thrown into the fire in order to make room for trees that do actually do what fig trees are supposed to do, which is to bear fruit to make figs. So this morning, let me ask you this. How do you know that you are Jesus's? How do you know that you are not simply Wasting God's resources that could be spent on someone else. There are people who've never heard the gospel, who are ready to hear. And yet some of us sit here week after week, after week, after month, after month, and I'm looking at myself in the mirror in the vineyard, and we've never yielded any fruit Now, before you ask, the question is, has Jesus suddenly thrown out grace and it's all about works? You need to earn your place in God's vineyard, otherwise you're done. Well, the the answer is no, because what Jesus is challenging is the idea that merely not sinning is a sufficient sign of life. We say Jesus wants you to stop sinning. 
And when that person stops outward or obvious sins, we say, okay, welcome to the club. We have a place for you. But when we make salvation about not sinning, all that happens, all that we succeed in doing is we drive sin underground. We create a culture of sneaky sinners, of clever sinners, of people who are dead but who think they are alive or who are alive but are not bearing fruit. Figless fig trees. We say Jesus wants you to stop sinning, but Jesus says bear fruit as proof of the li- of, of, that your life is transformed. And I fear that our churches and our church may be full of figless fig trees that are experts at pointing out the sins of others, of drawing conclusions of the news articles out there. We shake our heads at their life circumstances, at the way culture is sliding. We pronounce God's judgment, but we're not yielding fruit. And the owner of the vineyard, when faced with a figless fig tree, a fruitless so-called Christian, says, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and I haven't found any. Okay, cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? And just like the Tower of Siloam, the fig tree will come down, only this time it is because of God's judgment. So where's the hope? Where is the hope for hypocrites like you and me? Verse 8. Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I will dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then you can cut it down. The owner of the vineyard has already given the fig tree three years to bear fruit, nothing, and he's ready to cut it down. And the gardener pleads, just one more year, please. Isn't this an incredible insight into the urgency of repentance and the grace that we find in Christ? Just like the people who died in the tower or in the temple, we cannot put it off. We, we cannot slow down. We cannot keep on putting off God's call to new life. It's not enough just to stop sinning. Jesus didn't just save us to sit there in our privileged position and judge others. He saved us to bear fruit. Fruit that will last. Fruit that is in keeping with repentance. Fruit that is evidence of life. But the bad news, the bad news is that we cannot bear fruit. None of us can. None of us can bear fruit. There is a reason why Paul calls it the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of Dan. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's the fruit of the Spirit because I cannot bear it myself. I cannot refig my branches. This is the bad news. But the good news is that Jesus doesn't just sit there with a frown on his face, you know, and a clipboard in his hand, watching and writing as you fruitlessly try to bear fruit in your life. He isn't just waiting until he can pull out the chainsaw. No, Jesus is the one who gets down in the dirt and he digs and he fertilizes. Verse 8 says, Sir, The the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I will dig around it and I will fertilize it. This is Jesus' heart. He digs. He fertilizes. 
It's the Spirit who brings forth fruit. It's His life-giving energy flowing through us and sanctifying us and transforming us. Isn't that amazing that Jesus, together with the Holy Spirit, is the one who puts in the work to make us fruitful? Now, I know that Wendy is most at home with her hands deep in the soil. That's where she has her happy place. Nurturing life, creating life, making the circumstances in which life is able to happen. And I know that Jesus is most at home when his hands are deep, not in the soil, but in your soul. Nurturing life, bringing life, creating the circumstances in which life can take place. And so first, he digs. He removes what has to be removed. John 15 talks about Jesus pruning us for greater fruitfulness. Some things have to go. But in Luke 13, the image here is that Jesus digs. He removes. He creates space. But he also fertilizes. He adds. He gives us the nutrients that we need. Gardeners fertilize using marrow bone soil. And Jesus is the same. He fertilizes using his own marrow bone, using his own flesh and his own blood. He applies his blood and his flesh to our lives, to our situations, and he brings forth life through his own death. And then he waters us with the rains of the Holy Spirit. He removes and he adds. So friends, how is your soul soil? How is the soil of your soul? Is Jesus at work in the soil of your life? Unless you repent, you too will all perish. And so are you responding to his grace, giving him the permission to dig and to fertilize your soul? And how is the tree of your life? Is it enough that you're merely alive? Or are you seeking and pleading with God to bear fruit through you fruit that will last, fruit that, can see, that contains the seeds for future trees and vineyards and new life. And so as I wrap up this morning, I invite you to, along with me, stop making a big deal about the news stories out there whilst ignoring God's headlines in here. Let's repent of fruitlessness. Let's repent of settling for figless living. Let's pray for Jesus to do his sovereign work of digging and fertilizing our soul soil. And let's pray that it's not too late. The message of the gospel is a message of urgency. It leaves zero room for complacency or laziness. But it's also a message of incredible grace. God will keep on extending to us opportunities for us to repent. And not only that, but he will get down in the dirt with us. And so in the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, verse 18, may we produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And as we repent, let us press on to fruitfulness.